Troubadours and migratory two-handed cell-mounted senseis to another riveting episode of Hollow Waters Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Mieczysław Supinski, and our cognito ergo sum, as Rene Descartes said, Thinking Man's Fly Fishing Podcast is all for you, hatch-matching, code-cracking, bug-crazed crusaders. You dirty, nymphing, Neapolitan ninjas. Of course, you perfect, D-loop, throwing, sustained anchor, and touch-and-go space of oars. But least but not last, you savage, strike-seeking streamer-slingers. As we are the chronicles and voyages of the podcast starship, Hollowed Waters, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And not get shot down as a UFO, hopefully. Aha. To bring you trout, steelhead, and Atlantic salmon, wisdom, waters, tactics, and the lore, and so much more. Whew, I'm exhausted after that one. Jesus, where did I come up with that? Um, I am cranked today, and uh, today we have a very special topic that's going to touch on those anglers in one of the largest population centers on the planet, New York City and the East Coast. Today's podcast will be a two-hour two-hour part one and part two series, so probably 
about total of maybe four or five hours because we have so much territory to cover. And um, this podcast is uh, is about the, the foundation um, of the true American school of fly fishing as it as it happened and the the whole genre as it developed. And um, it is such an important one. And it's so complex that for us. And my guest, whom I will wonderfully introduce shortly, um, will try to tackle and give some respect and some some perspective on in today's day and age um, of of where it is, where it's going. Um, but this podcast is the Catskill Wild Trout Fishing Dynasty, uh, something that we all love, something that we've all been part of. We will pro go on to talk about the legends and the lore, the famous personalities, the rivers, the hatches, the flies, the tactics, the presentations, and the state of the Catskill fishery, past, present, and where it's going in the future. So hopefully our podcast in the EIB Broadcasting Studio, flying high above the Great Lakes, Lake Huron, here from Michigan on my Eagles Bluff overlooking the Muskegon River, where, by the way, the eagles are on their nest. And um, the way things are going this winter, it looks like, ah, uh, man, last four or five days, it was in the 50s. The sun was shining. Our tulips are already starting to bloom. God bless us. Um, it is not normal. And so those of you that uh, do not believe in climate change and warming, uh, whatever you want to call it these days, um, Things are surely happening, but we're supposed to get some snow today. So thank God for that. I am very happy for snow. And it's supposed to get back in the teens, not in the 50s and sun shining. And I got a suntan, by the way, which is really amazing. I've been out for a couple of days. Um, so uh, it's been a crazy week uh, this past week. Um, again, with those UFO shootings of balloons and all these crazy things that people are yet to know what's going on. Uh, it has also been a very sad week. Um, our condolences are out to all the people that lost their lives and prayers and blessings for them in, in, in the in the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Another sad event happened a couple of days ago in Michigan with the shootings at Michigan State. Uh, poor students. Uh, something has to be done with this gun violence stuff and these people getting their hands on assault weapons. It's just out of, out of control. Um, again, our blessings to... Ukraine and uh, another crazy spring offensive that that lunatic has launched, uh, killing his own people, killing Ukrainian people and soldiers. And uh, it is it is um, really sad what's going on. But, you know, on the positive note, congratulations to the Chiefs for winning the Super Bowl. Congratulations to Bayern Munich and to Dortmund for getting their first leg of the Champions League yesterday and the day before. And um, the sincere apologies to Chelsea and Tottenham fans, since I am a sucker buff. And um, so a lot has been going on. And also, I always extend a, a, a hope and prayers and blessings for all the people going through hardship, for going through uh, illnesses that can't be on the water, that are, are suffering and would love to to be out there and can't. But you can be on the water with us at Hollowed Waters Podcast. And um, also, after our last podcast, I have been flooded with emails and texts and messages and some people probably would have shot down our podcast high over Lake Huron, but some people and a lot of people loved it. And a lot of the comments were 
uh, either tremendous hate mail or people that said things that we said were long overdue and bravo and congratulations. But it's just basically to get people to think. And uh, that's what we're going to try to do today um, with this podcast that's going to give credit to the beautiful fishery of the Catskills and and the foundation of it. But, you know, to bring perspective to this, I just want to start off with a little comment, a little quote from the famous Mac Francis, Austin Francis, in his wonderful book, The Catskill Rivers. And uh, he just basically talks about what it is to be in the Catskills. And unless you're there in those land of little rivers and uh, in his books, two books, beautiful books that he's written, uh, I quote him, and here's a little beautiful verse. It is dusk and the big browns are rising to Hendrickson spinners in a ledge rock pool on the beaver kill. The air cools and mist begins to form as your line straightens and the fly falls just ahead of the last rise. Upstream in a quiet eddy, a file of baby mergansers paddles along behind the mother, the nearest one of them climbing onto her back for the free ride. Dark and into the mist close around the willows as you net your last trout, a good fish, and head back up the hill to the cabin. It is the proper end to another day of Catskill angling. If you are a sensitive angler, the Catskill streams have the power to possess your soul in an altogether benign but permanent manner. They have a captivating mystique that is unique in the world of angling. You come to fish them, and you are taken in not only by their natural beauty and wildlife, but also by the realization that you are joining a procession of anglers who have created one of the richest traditions in fly fishing history. And I think those solemn words um, are cannot sum up the Catskills and our love for the Catskills that I will do share with my guest, who is a wonderful icon of knowledge, and we will get into that. But I first fell in love with these Catskills as a little boy growing up in upstate New York. My dad and I would take an annual camping trip in May to, we'd stay by wagon tracks and a little campground and we'd watch the hatches. And later in life, I married uh, my wife, Lori, whose parents had a place in, um, near the Neversink and Rock Hill. And I fell in love with the Neversink. And I was always walking in Gordon and Hewitt's shadows when I fished these rivers. And and the Catskills have changed. Yet, if you go back into the woods and the mountains and look for the natural beauty there's still so much alive with the spirit of the Catskills in the days of the invasion from the city when the modern industrial age took over the ghosts of Fenimore Cooper and Washington Irving, Theodore Gording, LeBranch, Hewitt, Rip Van Winkle, Dirty Dancing, Cutchers, Woodstock, now Hasidic communities and casinos. And where is this all going to go? And that's some of the things that we're going to answer in this um, very Intense and depthful podcast. Um, let me get about our guest and our gentleman today that uh, we have chosen to be on this because he is such a unique man. He's such a passionate connoisseur of the fly fishing arts and lover of the Catskills, a true historian and a fervent fly anger that has lived the Catskill passion of this enchanted place. He's the president of the Catskill Fly Tires Guild. He's a fanatic fly tire. He is that, you know, he's that classic fedora flea ficker type guy that Big Apple has produced so many of these men in their tartans and tattersalls and fedora hats and pipe smoking trout gentlemen. I worshipped as a little boy when they brought their CFO and hardy reels out, bamboo rods, uh, classic Catskill dry flies. Um, this man, our guest, has fished all over the globe and continues to fish all over the globe. And he's as an embodiment to the pure Schwiebert-esque mode for the love and lore of this amazing sport. 
about the good things in life, like shooting and uh, collecting books and fine tackle. And this man, who I call brat in Polish, means brother. So we've known each other for several years. And um, uh, he is my bracek, as I say. Um, he has an appreciato for fine food and spirits, as a true Schwiebert-esque uh, angler would. Uh, he has been the author of the lovely pieces that have appeared in the Archival Angler column in Howard Waters Journal, writing about the magnificent history of the Catskills and the dry and wet fly legacy of the Gordon era. So enough of my rambling mouth, and we will get into our guest. And without further ado, he is the dapper dry fly druid of the highest puristic passion. His love for fly fishing for trout and the Catskills transforms the trendy, the traditional, and the transcendental. He is a modern, underhyped student and appreciado of the historical lore, the fly origins, and the tactical templates of these brilliant borscht belt Catterskill kills. This sensei can sniff out and match a Paralepsiphlebia adoptiva in the buggy masking hatch soupy suds of the scum line foam as a big Catskill brown cruises and garbage feeds along the long Catskill eddies. May I introduce the one and only Brachishek, Joe Chabayos. Welcome, Joe. How are you? Welcome back. Good and it's so good to have you. Um, it is uh, great to have Joe. And I and I, I selected Joe because the Joe's knowledge is, is immense. He, you know, he is not going to be singled out to having any platform that says, oh, he's a guide. Oh, he's an outfitter. Oh, he's a thing. And the biggest problem we have today in fishing is um, people just come up and say, well, they're doing it because of that. Joe does not. Joe is a true um, true gentleman and connoisseur uh, in that fine Schwiebert-esque mode. So, Joe, uh, how, you know, this passion, and I've never seen somebody fish as much as you and go around as much as you. Um, where did it all start for you, Joe? How did you bit, get bitten by the bug? What were those formative years? How did the cat skills be such a big part of your life? It is your time, sir, to talk about these wonderful things. Well, Matt, thank you for having me. And I hope that I can bring some information, some light, some uh, something that uh, may help your uh, audience. But uh, to answer your question, it, it's kind of simple that there are a lot of uh, individuals in, in my age that we, we had a grandfather, and it seems to be uh, indicative of a lot of us that we, uh, we got this love for the outdoors, you know, from uh, grandparents. You know, my parents, uh, the grandparents were immigrants. They hunted and fished for food. You know, uh, when they came, you know, you had the Depression, and these guys had to go out and hunt and fish, and that's how they put food on the table. And as a young man, you know, or a young child, you know, we used to go uh, like up to Bear Mountain uh, area on weekends. And, you know, there's Seven Lakes Drive. There's an area up there that have all these lakes. And you put kids in water together and it equals fishing. And my first recollection is, Matt, you're going to laugh at this. 
I found uh, monofilament and hooks on the side of this lake. And I went back to the picnic table. I got bread. I put the bread on the hook. Nobody, <laughs> you know, you know, what did I know? And I started throwing the thing in the water. It was, it was kind of like, I guess, natural. I, I really don't know. And they start hooking fish. And what I remember is like, you know, it was breaking off and whatever. So, you know, you fast forward a lot of years, you know, and what really started it was I joined this group. Uh, oh, this, let's go back to like 1987 or so. Because, you know, you get you grow up, you go to college, you get into a professional career and things, you know, fishing and hunting and you just put that aside. So I joined this group. It was called the Southern Catskill Anglers. And it was a group that was based out of, um, oh, what was it? Uh, Off of Route 17, uh, Orange, Orange County. I'll think of the the, the town, small town. Anyway, and I was very fortunate as a fairly, I was the youngest one in the group. I'm, I'm with a bunch of gentlemen. They're all 80 years old. And. And I was so fortunate that the knowledge they imparted to me and taught me, taught me fly time, taught me casting. We'd go on trips. And it was one individual in particular. His name was Bob Osborne. And I think a lot of us can go back to one individual. You know, of course, I had that inspiration from my grandfather. But, you know, you fast forward. And there's one individual that remains in your mind. And this fella, let me tell you, what I learned from him is is amazing. I mean, I've never seen a caster, 20 feet leaders, as smooth, very unassuming individual, humble, will tell you anything, uh, teach you fly time, share everything. And that basically is what got me started on the right foot in terms of my journey and the group, uh, what they shared, uh, was just simply amazing. So, and then we, we would go on outings. And of course, what, what's the water that you fished? You fished local water. There are streams that a lot of people have no clue. Shandam kill. What's that? You know, where, where is that? You know, Pine Bush, New York. Okay, guys. Yeah. You know, small streams. And then, you know, the guys would say, well, we got to go to the Neversink. What's that? So we go fish the Neversink. A big trip would be to go to the West Branch. So little by little, that's how I got my interest. So let's go back to like basically 1988 and start moving forward. And in thinking about this podcast, what, what made me reflect on my journey, in essence, is that my interest for knowledge. You realize that Without knowledge, without understanding, you're not going anywhere. So you have to be an avid. My suggestion is you have to be an avid reader and you have to read and you have to go out and do. All right. And it's nice to be with a group of individuals who are ahead of the curve and are willing to share. And and basically you you. Another point I was thinking of in my former professional career, 
people used to remark, oh, you're doing a good job. You're, 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 you know, you're outstanding. Your performance is good. And I go, okay. And in the back of my mind, that little man would tell me, you're okay. You're a better angler than you are in your job. If, and if someone says, you know, what do you really do well? Fishing. And they look at you and they kind of go, what? And that you have to have that passion. And yeah. to me, it's all about passion. If you don't have passion, go home. You're not going to bring your A game. Uh, if you're going to go to Catskills and fish uh, in certain spots, if you don't have A game, go home. So in a nutshell, that's it. And, and I go fishing as often as I can and fish everywhere that I can. Uh, I probably fished, I don't know, most more than most people in different locations. You know, when I meet people on, on the streams, let's say on the West Branch, and, and we start talking, and I go, well, you know, this is very similar to the Henry's Fork. And they go, huh, what's that? Oh, Osborne Spring, you know that pool? And I go, million-dollar pool? People don't know. And it's quite sad that a lot of people that I meet do not travel enough and fish enough. So in a, in a nutshell, that's it. You know, I, I, go to, I go to British Columbia every year. I go to Argentina every year. You know, I go uh, baby tarpon fishing in Mexico every year. So I get around. And I consider myself very fortunate in that respect. And I met a lot of people. Uh, and I used to go to shows. Uh, I used to help, uh, and I still do, Enrico Pugliese with his uh, dry flies and his developing his material. And, and to me, is you have to engage and be active. And it's just that important. Uh, if you have that passion for fly fishing. So does that kind of give you a, a little bit of uh, of my background? I think uh, your background is still developing, Joe, because um, it's amazing. I talk to you quite often on the phone and we text a lot and uh, you're always off to another location, whether it's Tierra del Fuego or Patagonia or or every week you're constantly on the water. And I think you're probably on the water more than most guides that I know. And um, that is the passion that we're talking about. That's the passion in the journey. Yeah. Uh, that's I was passion. fortunate that after I retired to go out to Montana, you know, my, my second passion is cooking. You know, of course, you know, uh, this guy over here, if you yeah. don't take care of him, he's not going to take care of you. So I was very fortunate to spend summers out in Montana, you know, I'd help my buddy at the Stonefly Inn uh, cooking a bit and then go fishing and fortunate to have the knowledge with hanging out with the guides and, and of getting more information from them and fishing. I mean, I would fish. No, you know, I could name a dozen rivers uh, that I would fish. I'd go to the, for example, go to West Yellowstone. In the course of a day, you fish three different rivers, and the people would go, "Wow, you're bouncing around." Oh yeah, why not? You know, you start at the Soda Butte, you walk down, you go to the Madison Junction. All right, okay, then you, you know, now you drop down to the Gallatin, and everybody. And 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 what's really sad again, I'm going to say, is that a lot of people don't get out and fish enough. You know, yeah, and fish locally as well. You know, Catskills is one area. Well, take a short trip to Pennsylvania. Take a short trip to 
to Connecticut. There's so much opportunity in terms of water that we have. It's just, um, you know, phenomenal. You know, uh, get out and fish when you can. And as I have been saying for many years, don't plan to spend money in heaven. It doesn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. You don't want to be the richest man in the graveyard, right? It really doesn't give you any. We're all, we all put our pants on. We all shit the same way. We all go die the same way. And you, once you're there, you're there. So to, to there. leave a legacy. When was the last, hey, Matt, when was the last time you saw a Brinks truck following a hearse? Yeah, not, uh, not very often. Not um, very often. So, uh, but that is wonderful. Yeah, you, you are definitely a very fishy dude. You, uh, I had the pleasure of fishing with you this summer in the Catskills and, uh, we'll be doing many more days coming, and uh, it was a wonderful day when we were fishing in that uh, on that very ice cold tailwater in a very remote part of the Catskills, and we were surrounded by all the Hasidics. The wonderful Hasidics were there, and it was sort of a picnic. But that's the beauty of the Catskills. Like, you know, the fact you know when I talked to, when we started this podcast, I talked about Cutchers and and Woodstock, and you know, it, it is you're near the largest population in the world, um, and yet. We have wild trout streams that still survive um, and that are still hanging in there despite uh, as much pressure. And we're going to talk a lot about that in the future and, and where they are. But the fact that it's a testimonial to, to a lot of, a lot of this fishing, uh, especially the, the, the brown trout and, and the way they've, they've, they've transformed the Catskills and our last podcast, uh, you know, we, we were two guys that love brown trout and there's a whole, bunch of people out there that don't like brown trout because they're not native and uh, native movement is uh, very strong and powerful and God bless them. I hope they achieve their goals, but sometimes you got to let nature unfold and do what it's doing. And um, it's kind of interesting. I saw uh, on, on, on Twitter, I, I go on Twitter quite a bit and there was a picture of a captured brook trout in a Norwegian stream and they're c- capturing all the little brook trout that have invaded a Norwegian stream and and um, they're 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 really having a tremendous disdain for brook trout because they're non-native and they shouldn't be there. And yet, oh, uh, man. they were they were supposed to be there. They were supposed to they were not supposed to be there, but they seem to be doing well. And they're out competing the brown trout. So, brook trout, God bless you. You got you God got uh, you. you got punches in your in your fists, and you're duking it out with those boys. And let live and let live, as Roger. You Moore know, said. finally, and, in Yellowstone. They finally, there's a couple spots where they got brookies and they're finally kind of going, okay, okay. And, and a blessing is the upper big hole. All right. Uh, river. It, brook trout. And let me tell you, you're, you go up Beautiful there fish. and you're catching brookies and you're going, what a joy, because it's not going to happen like that back East so much in the Catskills, yeah. the Catskills, you're going to have to go back country to little brooks and you're going to, you know, fish for them and you're going to catch like three inch fish. Yeah. Four inch beautiful. Fish. On a one weight, on a one weight, you can't get anything more beautiful. And God bless brook trout and God bless rainbow trout and God bless brown trout and God bless all trout. And we love Fruit them cake. all. And we are the not going to decide. So enough of that crap. Nobody wants, yeah. to, nobody wants to hear about that junk anyways. Um, anyways, let's get back to um, the foundation where it is, you know, for 10 million years ago, I mean, the, the Appalachian mountains were formed as the, as the templates were cracking up and, and we went from a giant sea into these mountain ranges and, and these 
valleys and these coolies, as they call them in, in the driftless area. And, and, and the Catskills were formed and all the water just trickled through these ravines and, and valleys and cracks. And it, it became the land of little rivers that we love today. And, um, Austin Mac Francis uh, couldn't have wrote more beautiful things about the Catskills. So we highly encourage you to buy his books to really understand the true, true ore of these magnificent rivers. But these rivers were formed um, and they're, they're basically, you know, um, spate driven rivers uh, as we're going to talk about when we get more into the rivers. But um, so here you had this water and then you had the, the, the new invasion, the, the European invasion into into, um, into the New World and the cities of New Amsterdam, New York were settled, and and then the, the Industrial Revolution happened. But prior to that, when we still, you know, Indians, Native American Indians, uh, the Native peoples, as they say, were around, and the the early pine, the rush, the British, excuse me, the British and the French were were duking it out for the rights of Amer- of the New World in America. Um, you know, fly fishing was going on back then. We're going to talk about this Catskill Modern Foundation of American fly fishing, but we're going to get back into the early years. And um, back in that Revolutionary War times, French and Indian War, there were British gentlemen, there were generals, and there were there were quite a few of them that learned the Isaac Waltonian uh, school, the Dom Juliana original school of fly fishing on the chalk streams in England and that whole foundation and how that was the foundation of modern fly fishing uh, in its true respect. But, you know, back then we had native brook trout that were flowing in all the waters. We had indigenous Atlantic salmon and uh, the first fly fishing before we get into the big names and we start talking to these people was these gentlemen in the Revolutionary War, these generals that were fishing the old school flies and they were imported their stuff here with them. And, you know, a British officer must be a fine gentleman and he must have the finest whiskeys and he must have the finest tobacco and he must do all the things. And part of that was shooting upland, shooting birds. And part of that was fly fishing. And uh, so that was going on. Um, you know, we always talk, we're going to talk about the Gordon Foundation, and that's where all the books go, and that's where everything goes. But there was a lot going on in that respect. So these these generals and the officers were fishing for trout and salmon in these rivers. And, uh, you know, one gentleman that really started writing about fly fishing more before the Gordon and, and LaBranch and Jennings and Hewitt school started emerging and Christensen and those guys, um, it was, um, you know, it was this guy named George Gibson, and he started writing for a, a, a field and uh, a turf and registry uh, magazine that was a paid newspaper. And he was, uh, he was came from a military family in Pennsylvania. And uh, I actually saw the, his stone limestone house up in Potter County in Sherman, uh, up in, near Sherman's uh, with a good friend, Eric Richards. And uh he, he he was fishing these hollowed spring creeks, the Latour, uh, the 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 big spring, and in one of in my selectivity book, I talked about. He was probably the first person that talked about selectivity because he basically mentioned uh, this fly only works in June, this fly works in May, and this little fly when we cut the wings off it, it was a dark gray mole fly, uh, sort of like a gray goose fly. It worked very well, and and on the big spring, and of course. It probably worked well with no wings because it was just like a little crest bug or a little scud. And so these people were there and they were writing it about it. But what was interesting is that this young little Gordon who's vacationed and 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 um 
spent time as his boy in Pennsylvania, fished these limestone spring creeks. So he was like, you called him the other day, Johnny Appleseed. He was one of these little guys that was already poking around and he was starting to figure it out. So he had that passion, that passion that you talked about, um, Joe, and and he started at that early school. Um, but, you know, when we talk about this true foundation of the, you know, the Halford Marriott in England and how it affected, uh, influenced the Catskills through Gordon's correspondence. Why don't you tell us um, how you viewed that whole relationship of Halford Marriott skews and, and how vital was it to the, the transformation of our Catskill fisheries? Okay. Well, what you, uh, just a note of something uh, quite hysterical. Uh, New York city, uh, it used to be a pond. It was called Collect Pond. Right now, it's a playground uh, around City Hall. And the Native Americans used to catch brook trout in that pond. And unfortunately, as more settlers came, they used to wash their clothes in the, in the pond. And eventually, it was drained. You know, So it was spring-fed. But there were brook trout uh, in that pond in lower Manhattan. Also to bring uh, uh, another antidote was think about Daniel Webster and the famous brook trout on the Nessequat in Long Island. That was quite interesting. However, what to get back to the your your question and you know where did this uh, come from? Our tradition came from England. When you you go back to the you, what you mentioned the uh, English military officers in England. Fly fishing was, it was definitely an upper class uh, endeavor. People with money, people with access to streams and such. And, you know, far, very educated individuals. So basically what uh, happened was it, we had a, an individual, let's say a ground zero or a spark which we can't really identify where and I, I'm, I'm going to refer to the uh, upwing fly. Okay. Uh, which was referred to at the time, but it was fish dry. You know, it was Halford that really, you know, said dry fly fishing, but dry fly fishing uh, there, it goes back to at least 1840. And Marriott alludes to that. And Marriott is the, uh, an individual, George Selwyn Marriott, another brilliant, passionate fellow who was responsible for helping Halford. He gave credit to this fella, Holland, who was, who was fishing dry flies. And he said, Mr. Holland obviously got this from somebody else. But unfortunately, in history, that individual will never get any credit. And, uh, but that, it shows the, the deference of Mr. Marriott that he was very humble and he was willing to give others credit. And he never really wrote much. And he, he didn't really uh, wanted himself to be in, in, in any sort of uh, big picture sort of thing. But he helped Halford put together the, uh, the list of dry flies and started what we call the dry fly revolution in England. Now that would have been in 1880, 1883. And we have individuals across the pond here in, in uh, whom were very aware of what was going on in England. And as that came over to the States, 
individuals, for example, Gordon, who already, let me tell you, what an amazing, we could talk about Gordon for hours. This man had passion. He had insight. He understood color. He understood design. I don't know if he ever truly went to sleep. That his mind was was working all the time. He used to write for uh, the field. He used to right. write uh, for, and in England. His articles would go to England, and he made he was in contact with Halford. Halford uh, essentially sent him uh, about thirty five of the dry flies that were being fished on the chalk streams. And that's what gave uh, Gordon the impetus to come up with. He looked at the flies. The, they didn't really fish well here. And what's remarkable about where Gordon was in terms of the cat skills and, and remarkable, again, is the hatches. We have hatches that, and we're going to talk about that later. But that's what inspired Gordon to come up with his design of flies. But uh, going back again in history, Dutch came here, Henry Hudson sailed up the, the Hudson, what, 1608. Dutch came, Dutch settlers came, and let me tell you, they, they traveled. Uh, 1707, we have a record of the Heldenberg family, Dutch family, that uh, bought land from the native Indians, okay? And basically it was what we know today are the Catskills, like 200 million, 2 million acres of land. And it was through the, what this family that if we're going to go back and do like a little historical thing about how the Catskills got settled, these rivers were discovered. And of course, people were fishing them. And a lot of that history we're not, we don't really have uh, that much information on. But eventually, the mid-19th century, people started to have these carriage houses where people, wealthy, well-to-do people in the city of New York would come up, spend a weekend, spend the summer. So they needed a place to stay, and they would fish. Okay? Now, before the Catskills came to prominence, we have what we call the Pocono tradition. So now think about the distance from Manhattan, New York City, to New Jersey, to Pennsylvania. It's like 55 miles or something. So they have all these wonderful streams in Pennsylvania that people were fishing. And essentially, when the fishing there started to decline, that was the impetus to really move north and really start this. Catskill tradition, and to have these people like Gordon, uh, given what you know, the hatches and his, uh, I don't know, his talent, his insight, his genius, to start putting things together uh, of how to tie uh, flies to to fish in the Catskills, and little by little, of course, you know, one house here, one house there, people would take a train up. And next thing you know, they're in a horse carriage and they're going to one of these places and and they're fishing. And what's just what's just really funny is when you read Gordon's letters, he goes down to the river. There's a line of people fishing. He throws his hands up in the air. He writes and he goes, I'm going home. 
uh, can't fish today. So when people talk about crowded fishing today, think about a hundred years ago. <laughs> Gordon experienced that 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 kind of uh, experience there with that. So basically, that when when individuals from Manhattan started going up on, and other locations up to the Catskills, it was the impetus to provide what goods and services, uh, flies rods, lines, all of this, and develop uh, an avenue for people to fish. And of course, the same thing happened in the Catskills. The brook trout were fished out and brown trout were introduced. I think, Matt, you have some insight into the stocking. What was it, first in Michigan? Where was the next stocking in the Catskills? Yeah, so uh, yeah, we're going to get into uh, we're going to get into that. I want to get into first this brook trout tradition. So yeah, the cat it was in the an uh, Aiden Brook on the Never Sink, and it was that same right. same batch of uh, that same batch of those eggs that came from uh, from Mather and the Cold Spring Harbor and uh, and 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 you know Seth Green and that whole thing. We're going to get into that, but I want to trace back a little bit further back. Um, and when you had talking about the zeitgeist and the spirit of the Catskills, the Catskills were this, this utopian vision of wellness, of purity, of water, of clean air, of, of everything that was happening and uh, in, in, in purity world. And as New York and the industrial age started happening and we're going back again, we're going to, we're going to start backwards and, and keep moving forward to this, but it was a, it was a, a beautiful wild place of 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 native brook trout that were in all the streams. There was no development. No development. There was nothing until Very little, almost yeah. no development. It was utopia. It was a natural utopia, and and like I said, we still have those areas of the Catskills, and they're still the Catskills are still ever so beautiful. And and if you could just tune everything out, but what started this whole amazing fishery? And 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 talking about Gordon and. Gordon was such a great synthesizer of everything. He right. synthesized but, everything. He synthesized the patterns, he, the the climate, the the fishing that was happening. Um, but this was a this was a quiet place, and um, the brook trough was yeah. eventually the 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 stifle of 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 the modern industrialization age that happened. And as the cities were getting overpopulated and New York were getting smog and, 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 and industry was happening and people were working tremendous hours and sweatshops and, 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 and moguls and, and financial barons were being established. The Catskills was the place to assault your free time. And thus the, the, the trains and the buggies and the carriages eventually found their way up the Wurtsboro Pike. And it's so great when you drive to the Catskills is that big mountain climb just before you get to Wurtsboro and how they had the trolleys and the lifts bringing all these people up to the new era of escape, the spas, the, 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 the little religious communities. And, and yeah. there was a lot and of Matt, you, know, you know what it is? It's like build it and they will come. Yes, exactly. Use that analogy, you know, and, and all of what you said and what we're saying, is that that's what drove people to the Catskills. And, but another point would be, well, you got all these rivers. Willow, okay? Uh, the Beaverkill. You got, you know, all these different, the Scoharie, you got all, we'll get into all the rivers. But you, you didn't have just one little river to fish. There was a lot of opportunity for people. So that, that was also a draw. 
Yes, and it was that it was that call of the wild, the call of the wild. I need to get out of the city. And today, look at you getting your 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 BMW cruise out of the city, and once you get on seventeen and you start going up that Wurtsboro Pike, and and you get up there and you just feel a sense of relief, and you feel Matt, like Matt, oh. two hours. All right, I'm in a radius of what twenty million people. You know, if you do the what is it, the fifty miles from Columbus Circle, which is in middle of Manhattan. And you do a 50 mile radius. What is it? 20, 24 million people. You know, I don't know, 20 million. And in two hours, believe it or not, still today, we can find solace uh, up in the Catskills. Pretty amazing. And it was to get there, to spend these, go to these boarding houses and hotels and to, and to uh, learn the techniques of fly fishing in the British tradition of swinging wet flies. And swinging a tandem style, you know, the classic style of two or three wets of those great patterns like the the Montreal, the Professor, the Brown Hackle, the Grizzly King. Oh, geez. It was just like heaven. And the brook trout being such a wonderful game fish was so eager to take the fly. And it, it became a craze. It became an obsession. And uh, the obsession turned into a heinous destruction of a beautiful native oh. fish. Think about uh, the photos that we see of like two gentlemen anglers and they have like a hundred fish on a string. I mean, that, you know, it's just unbelievable what, uh, what occurred up there. So it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm going to take a quote from uh, Austin Francis's Catskill rivers. And he basically sums it up. You know, it was, it was, it was the fish hogs as they called them, the trout butchers. They were, you know, we had names for them. We have names for them today. We don't want to say that here yeah. because they're, they're kind of terrible names, but they were the fish hogs. They were the trout butchers. They just, they just fueled by the numbers. And today we get into some ugly things and numbers and competitive fishing and blah, blah, blah. But you know, those stories were, you know, one quote here, the two largest catches truthfully reported this season were made a day or two ago in the upper waters of the Neversink River by three young men of liberty who did not claim to be experts. In one day's fishing, Charles Humphrey and James Theobald took 470 trout, weighing altogether more than 40 pounds. F.M. Lamoureux, fishing alone for nine hours, took 478 trout, weighing altogether 33 pounds. Catches of 10 to 15 pounds weights were matters of everyday occurrences. So you take quotes like that and you take the things that were going on uh, and the brook trout population, you know, they're, they're so, their fecundity is so incredible. They are wild, wild rabbits of the world. They, 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 they live in such beautiful environments with so much gravel and clean cold water that, that they reproduce at a tremendous rate. But despite that, they could not hold on. And then you start getting tanneries and you start getting this infusion of people that are the killing poles of these the trout hogs uh and then poaching on top of it who knows the poaching and then you know it was gone i mean by you know i'd say you know 1890 all of these overfishing trout hogs tanneries you know the, the 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 brook trout could not hold on any longer it was it was a total disaster and um, even if you you know the letters of theodore gordon which I recommend. There's a book that I've used tremendously. Uh, it's the McDonald book. And it's uh, about the complete fly fisherman. Okay. And notes and letters of Theodore Gordon. And you'll read Gordon's uh, letters 
that he writes and he talks about steam stream degradation. How people, you know, you cut the, the trees down, there's no more canopy on the you know, stream. And in essence, his observations were very astute. And, you know, we paid a price for that, you know, and that canopy that kept that water cold for those brookies, they didn't stand a chance. So, that, you know, what you're saying, Matt, you know, is unfortunate. You know, we don't do good to the environment. That's a fact. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I think the Catskills is such a beautiful uh, um, uh, uh, testimonial to the fact that how we can destroy things so badly and how how we we um, we have no respect for anything until it's gone. And a lot of things that I've talked about in some of my blogs is just, you know, we 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 try to create utopias. But then when we create utopias, they don't always work out as we plan. But you know, this this transformation, I think, is the most important part from going from one style of fishing, brook trout, tandem wets, a very easy fish that takes the fly in all types of water, and then going to a new world where the introduction of the brown trout comes in. Um, you know, I talk a lot about it in my uh, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus book, and um I'm just going to do a little little quote here. The thinking salmonid angler emerges for the brown trout litmus test. You know, the beauty and magic of the New York Catskills region is home to thousands of miles of charming freestone and tailwater rivers. Um, it was these magic of of that transformation that that took um that that took the philosophy of a way of fishing that was so easy that you could catch so many trout and catch so many on a consistent basis. And then all of a sudden lose that. And then to to save whatever fishing we have left. And today, listen, if we did not have these brown trout, these rainbow trout, these, these, these exotic invaders, we wouldn't have any fishing. We would not have any fly fishing. It's just impossible. Yeah. And the Catskills was that litmus test. It was that 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 howl thing that happened. Um, and then in 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 when you know the when when the, the German brown trout through Mather and and, and going to Germany and going to the great trout exposition and Seth Green and, and all the personalities that were involved brought the, the first brown trout from the Black Forest near Baden and these beautiful red dotted beautiful creatures. And they're they're called Bach Farell. And Bach means brook. Farellen means trout in German. Um, they were brought to Cold Spring Harbor. And then one batch came to Michigan. One batch went to Caledonia. And, uh, you know, then... In that magic moment in April 1884, they were stocked in the Pear Marquette and, the, and all the little spring creeks here near my, right near my place here, um, the White River and Bigelow Creek and everything. And then uh, you had the same transformation going on in New York. And actually the first batch was uh, escaped from the Caledonia hatchery. If you know that hatchery, it's near Rochester. And I used to fish it as a boy when I lived in upstate New York by Buffalo. Uh, I lived on in Niagara Falls. And it was Spring Creek, and that first batch came. But the true introduction happened on Aden Brook, um, uh, and Aden Brook is a tributary to the Never Sink, and that was the transformation of the Catskills. If anything had one biggest impact on fly fishing and the way we designed flies, the way we talked about approach, the way we did anything was that this German invader, this transplant, this invader, this invasive thing transformed the way we were fishing. And to this day, and then we, we're going to talk more about Gordon, what he didn't do and what he did do in his, his band of the foundational school. But 
that whole thing, you are now dealing with the fish that has an attitude, that has <laughs> a collective pro trial, that, that is coy, that is shy, does not want to be caught. Those four, 470 trout days were becoming one and two and three and four and five fish days. When the brood trout, when the brown trout came about, it, it liked a whole new series of water. It wasn't in fast water where a trout, a brook trout sees a fly swinging past it of a, a, a Montreal or a professor and grabs it immediately. These fish tended to settle into deeper pools, deeper eddies, the long Catskill eddies. The Catskills were almost built for these brown trout. It was like, it was like designed, like some perfect master had a design plan that if I'm going to bring brown trout anywhere, this, this area, these land of little rivers, were designed for this fish. And the fact that once we brought them and, and all the, the, the boarding houses and hotels and, and the, the guides that were running, there were plenty of guides back then. Everybody was a guide. Anybody in a, in, in a grocery store or anybody that did this or anybody that would, would, would uh, clean the manure shit out of your barn, he was a guide. And that, that we have that today. Unfortunately, and Gordon was a guy. These guys were guides, and what they did is once those fish, those oh, I could take you, I could take you for, uh, sir, I could take you for X amount of dollars, uh, ten dollars. I could take you all day for ten dollars, and we could, or five dollars, or four dollars, or three dollars, and I could catch you two, three hundred brook trout. And now you're dealing with the fish that it was almost like the world of fly fishing stuff, the world of fishing stopped when this well, the, the world of true came. fly fishing start exactly before it was the trout hogs and it was the heinous rapers of the waters it yes yes now exactly. it had to be fishing which exactly. was a blessing for us and i think that that whole thing in in its retrospect is what the cat skills mean so much to me and was um it was such a uh, invigorating thing for me to write my selectivity in my Nexus book is that 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 whole transformation transformed Gordon and transformed all these people into a whole way of thinking. And you got to remember that when Halford Marriott skews on and on and on and on, Holland, they were fishing to a brown trout in a very selective environment, the, the spring creeks, the chalk streams of England. These fish had incredible vision, incredible clarity. And they could see things. So we just started to learn. And and this new evangelist of Gordon came around. And uh and and but the influences and and I'm gonna get you back into that. We're gonna talk about what Gordon did do and what he didn't do well. And it and, and it's so interesting. But that brown trout changed everything. At changed first everything. it was scorned, it was it was hell, those Germans. We had a lot of anti-German sentiment going on pre-World War One. Uh, kill every one of them, get rid of every one of them, bounty for their head. As soon as you catch them, kill them, throw them on the bank, smash their heads. They're worthless. They're they're terrible. They have disdained American fly fishing as we know it. Um, that was a big, big game changer. And that today still is that game changer. And the fact that those fish are still cleaning up, despite we're throwing the largest population of people on the planet at them every day. And now it's year round, and we're going to talk about that. Is still going on. It's truly amazing. Um, and then you had the introduction of the Calhoun Creek rainbow trout invasion. You know, you had the California trout experiment, where 
where according to the tales, you know, these are all, some people say it's all tale, it's all folklore. The famous train wreck. The famous train wreck with the Cahill and the Brakeman Cahill uh, let those rainbows go because they were getting heated up and it was right on a bridge on a train trestle right by the Calicoon Creek emptying into the main stem of the Delaware. And thus the rainbows came. Um, you know, some people say it was fact. Some people say it's, it's, it's folklore. Um, but so now you have the two invasive creatures. And if you go to the fish, the Delaware, you have the ability to catch those two invasive creatures and they provide tremendous sport. They are wild reproducing and we have an amazing fishery uh, because of that. But at this point, we're going to take a little break. And uh, we're going to be talking about how that fish transformed Gordon and how it transformed the art of tying flies and the art of, of that man and his little school with Hewitt. So stay tuned. We are with Brat Joe Chabayos talking the Catskill legends and lore. We will be right back. Cable reels have been the pinnacle of reel technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems, are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection, and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their reel systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship. Another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and their boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. Most of you think of Orvis as a trout rod and a real company. Uh, I've known them for many decades, and I had my first Orvis rod, graphite rod, when I was a teenager, using up my hard-earned paper route money uh, to, to buy one. Um, 
They have been known so much for what they do in the trout world, and their stuff is outstanding, made in Vermont uh, for, for since the, the days fly fishing really started in this country. And um, but, but they've gotten serious with their spay uh, activity, and lately, um, uh, Combs uh, and the rod designers um, got together and say, we're going to be taken seriously in this market, and they came up with the Orvis Mission uh, two-handed series. Uh, I was blown away when I got my first Orvis two-hander, and I took it to uh, to Iceland, and I was just just overwhelmed by how well it competed with the other rods that I had with me, the Sages, the G. Lumises, the Berkheimers. Um, they put in some serious technology in these rods. Uh, the beauty of them, the handles, the the grips, the 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 whole the whole package is just simply amazing, and. Um, they are now a force to be reckoned with in the spay market, and you should definitely look at the Mission Series next time you're going to purchase the rods. They're 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 very affordable and they're beautiful in the hand, and they feel just as good as the top line spay rod you could possibly imagine. So visit Orvis, go to your Orvis dealer, to your fly shop that carries Orvis, and ask for the Orvis Mission. Give it a test run and look at it, and you will be simply amazed how serious Orvis has come into this very competitive spay rod two-handed market. Welcome back, listeners. We are talking the legends of the Catskills, the lore, the rivers, the tactics, and the flies with our Catskill Fly Tires Guild outstanding historian guest, Joe Chabalos. And we are um, getting into, into this transition, this, this transformation of, of how this whole Catskill fishery changed from you know, from nothing to overpopulating to brook trout to the to the new coming brown trout and how it evolved uh, to Gordon and his school of merry men. And uh, it's such an amusing, amazing thing because it, it was so, it was almost like it was perfectly made that this was going to be the foundation. This was going to be this progressive school of thought and, and the guys and the big personalities and you know, the misconceptions and, and all the things that we get into and who told who, what, and who did so-and-so. And, you know, it's it, the books that were written, um, you know, Francis's books on, on the Catskill rivers and Austin's, uh, Austin's uh, little land of liver rivers book. Um, um, and then of course, you know, Paul Schillery, who I have tremendous respect for in American fly fishing, he really dissected Gordon probably so, so well in what he did do and what he didn't do and, and his whole band of people that were there. And, um, let's talk, let's, let's get into that, that whole thing on, on, on how this fish transformed the way we approached these rivers in the Catskills when everybody was on the bandwagon, everybody's there, Mary Orvis Darby and everybody was there. And you see these beautiful pictures that Joe showed in his archival angler columns of everybody with their dresses and their best attire and their ties. And, and everybody was always a dapper gentleman. And this was, this was a religion. This was a passion that was forming. 
and was forming in the Catskills like no other in in the world because it was a well, public event. In a well, public in essence, event. Matt, in essence, tradition came from England. And I go back again uh, in England to as much was written, let's say, in 1880 to 1890 in America. You had 10 times that in England. I mean, you think about in England, you had Alfred Ronald's book of entomology in 1848, you know, and uh, so, and then how it was fit, you know, people fish there. So that base eventually came here. So you would have individuals, just like you said, would go up and they'd have their jacket on and tie and they start to fish. And the brown trout, of course, brought out a different perspective for, for angling that complemented this style. In other words, the patience, the passion, and, you know, this wily fish that refused to cooperate is, and in essence, is why we fish at times, is we have that anticipation that we're going to catch that guy. And if we don't have that, that, I'm oh, anticipation, you know, fishing, in essence, you know, it loses some of its charm. You know, why do we go to a river to fish? You know, it's anticipation of catching. However, there, we should have more than that. We should be, number one, hey, I had a great breakfast that morning. Oh, it's fantastic. It's a beautiful day. You know, I could be slaving away on a job. No, but I get to be in this wonderful place to fish and, and enjoy. Uh, so that that's all that part of it. So, you know, now the fishing has to change. So what also has to change? Materials, the rods, the lines, the flies. So all of that starts to take hold. And you have individuals that, you know, when they come up to fish, they're going to need lines. They're going to need rods. They're going to need flies. So that started that. That environment fueled that aspect of fly fishing, you know, how to catch them. So that that was all. And then with Gordon, okay, and Gordon is the most recognizable we we see, but there were other individuals. You know, there's a fellow that Gordon defers to, he used to call Uncle Thad, Thaddeus Norris, who fished all over. And then Gordon also defers to a fellow by the name of uh, Peter Cooper. We don't really know that much about him, but it would appear that Peter Cooper was fishing upright flies, a.k.a. dries, which would have been years before even Gordon had the idea of fishing dry flies. Now, what was remarkable to Gordon was that his upright wood duck wing, that transformed a lot in terms of uh, Catskill fly fishing and flies. And, of course, we have all the cast of characters that came afterwards. I don't know if you want to go into, into that yet or do you want to still go back <clears throat> and explain more, uh, delve in more about brown trout. What do you want to do, Matt? I think, uh, I think basically what we should start with is that, that transformation and what were those elements that were contributing to this whole thing that Gordon did. And, and, uh, I'm going to just do another quote. Um, 
that I that I I mentioned in Nexus is when the brown trout made its first Catskill debut. Needless to say, it was scorned for its shyness, stubborn demeanor, and an inability inability to fill basket creels to the brim. The thinking theoretical flyinger was ready to make his debut. The time was right for throngs of anglers who were ready for a sermon and a solution, and therefore Gordon stepped in the role as the first father of the American selected brown trout angler in his 1987 masterpiece, American fly fishing, Paul Shurey wrote of Gordon's significance, but as part myth and fallacy, since there were so many new fly fishers looking for advice and direction, Gordon became a cultural necessity of being just as many religious icons have appeared throughout the ages. And, and, you know, I think Gordon was the great synthesizer that took place here. And, 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 Let's talk about the waters and the and what what the new conditions were in in this whole process. That, okay, here you know the uh, fly opposed, the setup. Uh, okay, as opposed to England, what was remarkable about our water was, and let's look at the beaver kill. It's a freestone, rough and tumbling river compared to the chalk streams, so that would pre- present. Uh, a lot of cover for for browns, brown trout. They're hiding behind rocks. They're here. They're high. So it gives them a lot of advantage. And anglers would have to be uh, propose a lot of uh, difficulty for uh, angling because as opposed to the brookie, you know, they just used, like you said, swing a couple of wets, boom, they're on. But the Browns had all this hiding water and the, and to to exist in, you know. Really look at you go way up top on the Beaver Kill. Uh, it's a much smaller stream, still a freestone and fast moving. Uh, you know the Willowemuck, you know, it's very similar. And so you have all these these places where these fish can hide and not make themselves truly available. However. There was one weakness, and that comes to the hatches, which we'll get into later, is that when you have these big bugs on the water and a fish comes up and gobbles it, uh-oh, game on. Now, now you could engage these fish. So that, that, that's what then the fly tying came in where people could, you know, they would make tie the flies that would catch these fish. So that brought a little more game to the anglers uh, to fish for the for the Wiley Browns, but definitely that that changed, you know, uh, fishing forever in the Catskills. Yeah, and uh, so here we go. We go now to that think tank, and and this is you know what we do on this podcast. We're a think tank podcast. We're you know we're the 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 what I think inspires most fly fishermen is the fact that it's not just, you know, throwing a worm on and going out there and cracking open a beer and catching the fish. It's, this is, this is, this is, this transforms the mind and to make it, to, to make it more crazier to think of, do we, oh, sometimes we overthink things and that's sometimes the beauty. So sometimes the thinking man's fishing is, is, uh, an over complex, uh, analysis of things that have a very simple, understanding which is a trout taking a fly but so then you got into the, the correspondence that 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 uh, gordon had with 
with with the British, with with Halford, and you know the exchanging of flies and the things of that nature, and that Even is what you do today. Yeah, more what so you do with today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, we're and he there. wasn't. Believe it or not, and there were a lot, quite a few other individuals who were aware of Halford and Skews. So you had that. I would, but you know, I don't want to use the term elite, you know, but you had uh, well-to-do individuals who were aware. And, you know, there were quite a few other people. Unfortunately, I'm not aware of too many others, you know, but it's, it's sad in one respect that Gordon gets all the credit, but there, there has to be other individuals, you know, and, you know, to going back to Marriott, he says, who's the fella that will never get the credit. So, but uh, in, in, in the Catskills, there had to be other individuals tying flies. But Gordon, of course, because of his relationship with Halford and Skews and his fly tying skill and his, you know, moving around in different circles. You know, Gordon used to come to New York City and hang around with, you know, some high end rollers down in the city. You know, and I think that's what gave him a lot of prominence. You know, there's certain high-end clubs that had pr- that already had secured. Like private the Anglers prom- Club of New York, the one you belong to, correct? Uh, the Brooklyn Fly Fishers Club. Right. Brooklyn yeah, Fly Fishers, I mean, right. So he had uh, access to individuals, uh, and that's what gave him uh, a prominence. And, of course, you know, without his, his insight and skill, uh, of course, he would not have gone very far. He was able to, to carry a big stick, in, in essence, but in a very uh, humble way. So that's that's what gave, you know, gave Gordon a lot of credit. But the guy, he was actually quite brilliant in his ability to observe. Gordon is credited, you know, uh, with, in the old days, you would go to the stream and you would tie a fly right on the stream. He would look and observe, and he would say, hmm. So he'd go into his little pat, his little leather booklet, and he'd start pulling out a hook, and and he'd hand-tie something to fish. So, you know, that was quite remarkable for for him at that time, how many people had that ability to do that. So that's what gives him a lot of credit. And then, of course, when he came up with the, the fly, the ground zero, the spark, yeah, the Quill Gordon, that turned everything. That that was ground zero, basically. That fly, how it was designed, was just pure genius. And everything, or not everything, but a lot followed from that particular design of fly. And and then of course you have, you know, all the individuals who followed Gordon, who contributed. So that's something that's remarkable uh, and very akin to in England where you have Pritt and, uh, you know, all these individuals who in, in different years would, would tie and became well-known, but everyone contributing. So Gordon started this sort of school of tying, we would say, and then he had two individuals who he was close with who continued it. And then, you know, Christensen and uh, uh, Steenrod. And then it goes to, you know, 
Rube Cross, and it's just a whole progression of individuals who built on what Gordon started. And uh, it just, that history uh, is very remarkable. We can, we can go in, whatever, whatever you want, you want to, you know, is that where you want to go now, Matt? I think you're on the right track, my friend. It is, uh, it is, we're all leading to this and we're leading to what was and what was not and what, what, what we thought was, but there's certain foundations and that comes back down to the first thing that you talked about is the passion. And that passion was in that school and that school was a hollow church and it was in the Catskills. And yeah, when you I, go to I, the go Catskill Fly Fishing Museum today, it is a hollow church and it is and a church. all these individuals, you know, uh, Steenrod, they all had that passion. All right. Uh, that's, that's what's remarkable. And it's the one key, you know, uh, Rube Cross had that passion. Everyone that we can identify, you know, we move along, you know, there, and then with our other individuals in there that we've now recognized and give a lot of credit to Ray Smith, he, but he still fished a lot of wet flies. Okay, and and then, of course, Hewitt, LeBranche, all these individuals who had passion, you know, and would and but all made contributions. And basically what we have is we have this dry fly school, which, you know, you go group uh, cross Preston Jennings, you know, there's a whole line of. You know, from let's say the early 20th century right into like the 19 late 1960 or whatever, a, a progression of individuals all contributing. But you have dry flies. But what a lot of people don't realize in the Catskill School, we have everything. We got nymphs. We got wet flies. We got streamers. We have look. Uh, Hewitt, and I even have a Hewitt fly. I can, I'll show you, Matt. That is a Hewitt Never Sink Skater. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. you know, it, which is totally different from anything Gordon, you know, uh, that we associate with Gordon. Although Gordon tied all kinds of flies. And Gordon fished for pike, for bass. He was extremely well-rounded in his angling ability, uh, unfortunately, until he was not well. That's quite sad, you know. But uh, this progression of individuals that came to be well-known and to the top of a game and, and, and contributed. Now, you look at, and then Rube Cross, I mean, his flies are just simply amazing. Going back again, we have individuals at the time of Gordon who were writing. And I have a book uh, that I would highly recommend everyone to get. It's Emil Gill, Practical Dry Fly Fishing. If someone is like, has that passion like I have, this book is just insane. I mean, the That's original printing... Book was is in 1912 so this is gordon time and it's quite remarkable and another book that i would recommend and it's the book 
of books, one of the book of books. And it's a fella, an English fella, uh, and it's H.G. McKellen. McKellen, the Trout Fly Dresser's Cabinet of Devices. This is the book that Gordon used to learn how to tie flies, uh, uh, in essence. The Deddies, the Darbies, everybody in the progression started from this book. Okay, and the, you know the, the the first printing I have here is nineteen. Oh, geez, nineteen oh nine, nineteen oh eight. But I'm sure now he wrote for the field. He wrote for the, the English paper that uh, that Gordon got. But Gordon quotes this book as being very helpful to him in learning fly tying. So think about that. Well, you know, he was already tying nineteen hundred. And he, you know, he, what, he passed away in 1916 or so, whatever. I think it's 1916. Uh, but the, these books, all of these books were out there at that time. Hewitt put out his book, all right? And, and LeBranche wrote in that, what, uh, Dry Flying Fast Water, what, 19, I have it right here. In that, in that teens year of the earliest 20th century so all of these guys were and hewitt and lebranche knew gordon that's what's really remarkable they had lunch with him and they knew him so he influenced them in terms of their time so and of course you know we can progress in terms of uh how flies uh changed a bit uh you know, we had uh, more, for example, the, the March Brown fly. Uh, we would go to Preston Jennings that actually classified that particular uh, mayfly. And, of course, Art Flick then changed it around. But you had all these contributing flies like George LeBranch, the pink lady fly. Uh, he, he came up with that. And Gordon came up with, you know, a couple of flies. We had Steenrod. We had. You know, we had the Henriksen, and you had all these different flies that were introduced. So, well, I think that's more about fly tying, you know, uh, and, uh, I don't know. Are we getting off off topic in terms of fly tying? We're Not still at good. all. We're going we're gonna to be hitting that whole fly tying, but we're going to be doing it more in the modern era. I think what we should be doing right now is paying respect to these legends and lores, and that's our whole all, thing. So we're going to... All gonna... these fellas wrote, for example, now we have... Uh, Rube Cross writing books, okay? Fur and Feather. What what year was this published? You know, uh, New York, uh, 1940. That came way late. So this is way late already in, 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 uh, in time, okay? You know, his first book, uh, Tying American Flies. Yeah, that, that, that's a whole lot later. You know, so we do uh, 1936. So we have a gap. For some reason, we have a gap uh, of years where no one was really writing. You know, there's another fellow that should be mentioned. And we talked about it yesterday. Lewis Reed. Yes. We're going to yeah. talk a lot about him to come you know, when we decide that when we get into that Casco flight. But these are these are all the connections that come in. And, and Reed is is in this. Um, you know, 
I think I'm going to go back to Paul Schulery again because he sums up, and we're going to probably try to lay Gordon to bed here, where he and give him some rest in, in, in his spirit. But um, several things about Gordon that he came along at the right time for the we America and, and fly fishing was in desperate need of a new evangelist, and that's what Gordon became. And he was such a great writer, prolific writer. He was, you know, there were so many great Catskill fishy dudes, fly fishing guides that were just so good, but they weren't great writers. They were not good no. pontificators of the world word because Gordon associated himself so much with, with Halford, another phenomenal writer and, and skews. And those guys were skews was the master writer of all. Oh, in my opinion, skews was, was the empiricist was the, the psychologist, the, 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 the theoretical transcendentalist that, that, that just shed light on the whole fish taking the hook angle that would ever be written. But hey, Matt, here, look at this. This is uh, a book that uh, I think The Way of a Trout with the Fly. Perfect. Yes. This is an original first edition that was owned by one of his sisters. And I have provenance on it. This is a book I recommend everybody to read. Yeah. It's just genius. It's it's genius. And a good way, a good book that did that was the essential GEM skews. It was a complete compilation of all his writings in the finest form. Uh, it, it's it's good for you could still get it anywhere. Uh, it's it's a common purchase. But I want to go back and just sum up the Gordon thing, and then we're going to get into yeah. a few of these personalities. You know, and I go. Hillary was he he did so much of a of a of a of an analysis of a of a spiritual and mental analysis of what really was this Gordon this infatuation, and, and he he's going to basically sum it up. He said. Uh, and I and I wrote this in my uh, select in my uh, Nexus book where I talk about Theodore Gordon, America's first fly fishing evangelist. Uh, um, uh, Shellery says he did not write in angler's entomology, but he tirelessly preached its importance. He never stopped telling his readers to look at the insect and learn its ways, then imitate it. But he did occasionally mention some specific emergence he had witnessed or attempted to imitate, usually telling the readers that it was a caddis or a mayfly or whatever, and giving the times, dates, and locations. It would be worth the time for some enterprising Catskill anglers to extract this information from the entire 25 years of articles and unpublished letters and what we see kind of hatch chart it would turn into. Then it would be worth that same angler's trouble to go on and compose those flies that Gordon observed and recorded with the color portraits of the flies in Lewis Reed's book, American Trout Stream Insects, and see how the two of them line up. Reed also gave emergent states, and perhaps between the two of them, they may have given us valuable resource that could then be compared with various modern works on the same subject. Even after the exercise, the best we can say for Gordon as an entomologist is that he tried his best to encourage others to care about the subject. And that is the lore of the cat skill fly tire skills. That is the lore of what we do as hatch matching fedora flea fickers. And, and, you know, and Shillery summed it up again. He said, you know, Gordon didn't invent the dry fly in America. Uh, even yeah. the quote Gordon was a wood duck wing is nearly a direct copy of the materials of, of a Halford pattern. So the question uh, uh, becomes. Halford didn't use wood duck. Yes, but the, the style, going back to right. the style, he transformed the British pattern. So given all of Gordon's didn't do's and didn't do's. Gordon found that the, the daintily tied flies of Halford did not hold up in this new era of Catskill fishing. 
And that's how that whole transformation uh, came to play. And and then we're going to get into these other personalities. But we are going to take a break. And we are going to be right back talking the Catskill Wild Trout Fly Fishing Dynasty, the legends and the lores, which we are exploring in our fascination. We'll be back. And lines have been around since Cro-Magnum Man and Neanderthal Man, and that's what they caught to catch fish. And today, your hooks and your lines and your tippet material and your leaders are so important. And it's the ultimate challenge in what happens with you on, on a trout stream or a salmon and steelhead river. Um, hooks and lines are by far the most important things when it comes down to your choice of quality. And quality is probably the number one thing on the mind of English Sport Group from New York. Um, Maxima Leader Material and Leaders and Daiichi Hooks are their specialties. And I've been a big fan of Maxima as so many fly swingers and spay fishermen for such a long period of time. Their chameleon match up to the toughest conditions, the abrasion. They're, they're stiff enough to turn over large flies. The ultra green and clear are, are just perfectly blend into a lot of the blue green aqua looking waters of certain salmon rivers that usually have two different types of connotations, a tannic or a very, very bright, clear scenario. Um, Maxima is the ultimate test pound for, for heavy, big flies on the swing. Uh, when that fish takes your fly, you're going to be very protected with Maxima. Daiichi hooks, there's not enough good things I could say about them. Um, in the trout series, the specialty hooks that they have, um, down to their big Alec Jackson spay and the different type of spay hooks that they carry. Um, I would always shop for the best, shop for Daiichi and Maxima, and you will never go wrong. Hello, listeners. If you love the content that you're hearing on the Hollowed Water podcast series, Migratory Spay, um, you will love the, the books that were written by the guests that have been on this podcast series, especially from Topher Brown and myself, who did the inaugural four-hour series. We talked a lot about Atlantic salmon, and uh, if you're addicted to Atlantic salmon, um, Topher wrote his book called Atlantic Salmon Magic which was printed by Wild uh, Wild River Press, and my book, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, uh, by Skyhorse Publications, uh, really take you to the next step if you like what you listen to, if you like all the content that we've been talking about in these podcasts, 
The next step is to go and read and, and get di- to dive deeper into, into what's behind the magic and the journey for these amazing fish. So we encourage you to go to Amazon, go to your local fly shop or to your bookseller um, and request these books, which will make you see a lot more things that you've missed along the way and uh, dive per- further into the passion for Atlantic salmon. Hello listeners, this is Caleb, editor and producer of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast. This episode and all of season three of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast features music by Dutch EDM artist Arpo. You can find them on Instagram at Arpo Music and find their music on all major streaming platforms. Our thanks to Arpo for the use of their song Floating and for their support of the Hallowed Waters Journal. Welcome back, you listeners, and thank you for all the wonderful emails and texts we've been receiving at Hollowed Waters Podcast. Our podcast is going crazy with uh, new subscribers and listeners, and we appreciate it. And I think everybody's enjoying the content. If you have any ideas of what more you would like to hear, please email us and text us, and we'd be happy to share you or anyone that has some ideal uh, personalities they would like to feature or whatever. We are um, a thinking man's podcast and thinking ladies podcast and thinking whatever you are podcast. And we uh, love to dive into these meaty topics as we are discussing such a, an amazing school of these new entomologists emerging and uh, people like, you know, Gordon that we just hashed around for quite a bit. And, you know, then it's the offshoot. So Gordon, you know, he 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 started to preach his style of of tying and his correspondence with the Brits, and then he taught Steenrod how to how to tie, and he was his loyal loyal person. And it's kind kind of interesting that um, everybody had their loyal loyal person or you know people they trusted, and it's so much so similar today of what's going on in fly fishing that we have our little group of friends, we have our little club, we have our little cliques, we have our little buds, our little fishy dudes we could call. And don't tell him. And it, that stuff was going on back then. And there were little clicks back then. And there were some guys, some didn't like to fish with others. And, and and you know, uh, Gordon, as much as he was such an eloquent uh, personifier of the, of the sport, he had his little differences with Herman Christian. And don't tell him, don't tell Herman Christian where that big brown trout is because I got my eyes on him and he better not know. And and Steenrod would walk for miles from the post office in Liberty and walk up the old Never Sink Road up there through Aiden, Aiden Hollow Road and up through there just to tie flies on a cold, wintry night and then walk back in a blizzard. Or some nights he'd spend the night. And, you know, I talked, we talked a lot about him in, in our article in the Hendrickson's in the spring issue of Hollowed Waters Journal. It was a complete, you know, expose on, on, on the devotion and the passion. And and the secrets, the little the little dirty secrets we come up. Oh, look at this pattern. Look at the go. Oh, do you see the way I have this tail going? See the way the wings are. See the segmentation. See the see the this. See the that. It's the empiricist in all of us that that gets us going. That passion, and that's why we do it. We go to the vice. What do we do when we go to vice? To be creative. You're you're an industrial tire. 
and you got to crank up 40 dozen, 50 dozen by tomorrow, where you go in and say, ha, what am I going to do today? And sort of like what you guys do at the Catskill Fly Tires, you go into what was and what is and what could be. And these are the things that was going on back then in that Gordon era, in the foundation of that Catskill um, empire. But let's talk now about some of these other personalities in that little school. And I think prominently, um, we're going to talk, uh, you know, George LeBranch. Uh, here is a man every bit as incredible as Gordon. Um, he had different philosophies about his fame. He was a little more subdued. Um, he sought, you know, he he was a dry fly tactician. LeBranch was one of the best anglers of the time. Uh, let's talk a little bit, a little bit about LeBranch. And then we're going to go into probably the the one of the biggest scholars of that whole school, the, the 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 true brains of that whole operation that embodied that empire was Hewitt and the contributions that Hewitt made from from a fish cultural level, bringing Atlantic salmon to the Catskills to you know his his never sink spiders and that you know I love fishing that never sink water because it's so such a hollowed. You're walking with the ghosts of these people that that transformed the way we approach trout. So, um, Mr. Joe, uh, Brat okay. Joseph, I'm gonna I will go. Now, Let's talk LeBranch. Let's talk LeBranch. Now, we're going to just drift back a tad. What was the brown trout? What? What? How did it change the fishing? And now here come, we got Emmett Gill in practical dry fly fishing, and we got George LeBranch. And the how did the brown trout change? Well, that's what inspired LeBranch and Gill to write. And what LeBranch is really accredited for is his concepts of presentation and his thoughts about color and size of flies. And that really is a, a remarkable change in the way people started to think about fishing. You know, you have the old adage, wrong fly fished right, fishes better than right fly fished wrong. So, it, you know, you, we went from this imitative school where you had to 100% attempt to imitate uh, a mayfly now it was a kind of, well, we do the best we can and come up with an approximation in size and shape and color. But the way it was to be presented, which was George LeBranch's forte and how he describes that and where he fished and he gives, you know, stand here, where do you cast? And, and his term of presentation is something that is really lost for a lot of individuals. Uh, because casting in that respect is, is so critical. You foul one cast on a fish, you're done. And especially in certain waters on the Catskills, you only have one good uh, shot at a fish. And that's what's remarkable about LeBranch. His casting skill is truly remarkable. And uh, another individual which would be a, a, akin to LeBranche would be George Selwyn Marriott in England, who was right. a, a phenomenal caster. And, and, and as a result, used to report, uh, caught how many fish 
You know, LeBron doesn't necessarily, you don't read about LeBron where he's saying, oh, I got my three bags or I, you know, whatever. I got two bags or whatever that, you know, my, I got six brace of fish or whatever that you don't really get that much about in LeBron. LeBron is talking about tactics and and actual fishing. And why? It goes back to that wiry brown trout, that that why we wascal. He doesn't want to get caught, so we have to be really uh, sneaky. So that's where the, this is now, and that was written in 1913. So now we have that aspect where people are accepting the brown trout, I guess, and they don't want to like get rid of these guys, and then they're trying to figure out how to get them. So then we have this second group of individuals who are putting this tactical information out, this how to get it. And with, with Hewitt, uh, a, uh, a co-buddy, a big buddy of LeBranche, they uh, start this uh, club up on the upper Neversink. And that's where, you know, and Hewitt, as another one, uh, and this is what's remarkable again, when I talked about Catskill style of, uh, fit, of flies, we don't, it's not all about that iconic quill gourd. We got caddis patterns. We, we got every kind of patterns. And Hewitt, again, came up with, uh, you know, he's got his never sink skater and he had, he had a, you know, uh, at least a half dozen other patterns, you know, uh, and hit that contribution and of course then there comes his book you know and and it's you know what well, i have it right here well too many books you know i uh he, he wrote a quite informative book about fishing and uh, would have been i think it was in 1931 so so we have a kind of time lapse from like 1916 17 to like <clears throat> the the twenties, you know, uh, and is not much written that I have have come across that I would value. But uh, well, you got John Olden Knight was writing. You got uh, there, there's a bunch of other books, but uh, again, uh, uh, they start to repeat. Uh, you know, so in that respect, uh, Matt. Let's get let's get me back on track over here. Yeah, so you know we we've had this long school uh, and this this intense school and the school got intensified, intensified, intensified. Eventually, you know, Gordon started to lose his health. Um, things started happening. Uh, you know, Hewitt started getting into more conservation issues and started to become you know typical things that happen. We 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 start out as fishy dudes. We get really excited about the fishing. Then we start taking on the vision of what's gonna be and what's gonna happen. And and that whole school starts transforming into the new people, into the newcomers, into the, you know, who who's carrying the torch. And then we're gonna work work our way into the middle modern era of uh of the next generations and the next people and that sort of thing. And then it well, comes yeah. into, you know, let's, we're basically putting this era to rest. And, and how well, would you like to sum up this era? We're fortunate that we had Hewitt around for a lot more years. Right. Okay. And, but again, now we got, you know, you got Rube Cross now, basically in the mid twenties, a little bit, Matt, then you have daddies and Darby's. 
And what was remarkable about uh, the Daddies and Darbies? Yeah, that's the middle that, generation that we're talking about. So we're going to yeah, trans but, transform but, into this. But middle. Maddie, they started. They started Fly Time in the late twenties, right? Yeah. So, but and what's remarkable is that they fueled what was needed. The commercial types, you know, people would come up to fish. They need flies. So the fly tires fueled a lot of the fishing that was done in the Catskills. And then you had this commercial enterprise that started producing flies. And, you know, on both sides, Diddy's and Darby's, made huge contributions in terms of patterns. And they lasted, you know, way late, you know, uh, 60s, 70s, you know. They, they're they a huge force in time. And then you have individuals after them. So are we ready to jump into that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, and that, that basically sums a lot of that up is, is, you know, and we talked a lot about this when we were first talking about this podcast is, is who tied what, where did it come from? Who, no, that he didn't tie that. This came from so-and-so, so-and-so gave me the inspiration for this. So as the Catskill school was the foundations were laid by these iconic you know, uh, Gordons and the branches and, and Hewitts and, uh, you know, Christian and uh, Cross and these people, you know, and they came from that never sing school. That never sing school was that foundation. And then it branched out. And then, you know, fly fishing in the Catskills started as a private sector and small clubs and small boarding houses and small, you know, little communities, and then eventually became public. And I think one thing that was so beautiful that you still have in the Catskills today is public water. There's so much public water, and I and I I we you take it for granted every time you go there, and I take it for granted. But to go to a parking lot and see a beautiful sign and a nice parking lot that says this is public fishing rights, there's more of it in New York State than anywhere, and it's more well laid out and more done than anywhere, and that 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 free enterprising spirit that the Catskills started uh, for people to have communal fishing. So the British tradition was a private tradition. You had to belong to the Houghton club or you had to be part of the officer's club water on the river Avon where Frank Sawyer was, or you had to be part of this club or that club or the, the, the Wiley river club or, or this, what we did in the Catskills was transform. What was a private nobleman, castle, gilly, you had to be a land baron that owned the water. Uh, and unfortunately, that is going on today more in the Catskills because of all the the um, Habsburg thing. The, the We're going to get into that as we get into the future. But what I'm trying to get to right now is that when you made this sport a recreation for all to enjoy at any level, at, at whatever highest level you want it to be at, and then you see the pictures of all the people on the on the Beaverkill River. And then you see them all, 20 of them lined up with their fly rods in one pool in one spot. And that transformation became big. Thus came to what you were talking about, the need for flies. And you just can't be a buddy of, you know, you can't be a buddy of Steamrod or you can't be a buddy of Cross or Rube Cross or you can't be a buddy of Gordon or so-and-so to get your fly, get your fly gig, you need to mass produce flies on a large scale that had all of the inspiration that, that, that Gordon and, and these hollowed creatures, these first gospel writers had. 
And thus you came into this middle era. And then we needed to understand these insects. And then we're going to get into Preston Jennings. And we're going to get into the, the Darbys and Deddies. So that middle era. And finally, the man that made was more impactful, Art Flick and Streamside Guide was monumental. But let's start off with Jennings. Let's start off with the Deddies and Darbys who learned their okay. skills from Steamrod. And let's go into that branch. Well, first up, we're going to just jump back a bit. The response uh, for all, all the private property uh, on the Upper Beaver Kilt is in response to what happened in terms of people coming in and fishing the rivers out. And groups thought that if we don't, we don't have a private club, if we don't uh, post these waters, it's going to be fished out. It's going to be, uh, there'll be nothing there. So in essence, you could say, yeah, we're not happy that it's, you know, that you can't fish that water. But in essence, it doesn't get fished as heavily as public water. So it, it kind of, you know, uh, I don't know. You're going to have mixed mixed feelings on that. But what's remarkable, again, is that we do have tremendous amount of, of uh, public water. So to, to get back now, we're going to go uh, the need for flies. and. Of course, you know, Rube Cross, uh, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of debate. I think he alleges that he learned from Gordon, but I, I, I don't know, honestly. I, and I don't, I don't think I'm gonna, not going to hold up that to be as important as the fact that the man tied exquisite flies. Okay. He was a, a, a very good fly tire. And, and apparently Deddies and Darby's approached him to uh, learn, and he refused to teach, all right? But what, what happened is this: the famous story is that they obtained some of his flies, and they took them apart. So it was very simple. Once you take something apart, you deconstruct, and they go, oh, that's how he did it. He did it this way, that way, that way. So basically, if uh, that's how they learned how to tie flies. But at the same time, they were very skillful. And they had a skill set. They had a passion. And they could tie. And they tied well. All right. And uh, initially, if you look at some of the the store, the, they combined and they sold uh, the Deddies and Darby's had uh, a business. They worked together. Their offerings were a lot of flies still from England. They offered English patterns. But then again, they had the new American patterns. That were that were being developed, and they came up with a couple on their own. Oh, you know, uh, Harry Darby's two feather fly. I mean, there's a lot of flies that they came up with patterns. You know, the coffin fly, which is the uh, uh, spinner for the green drake. I mean, that that's simply brilliant. I mean, the there, there's so many. You know, the flies that that they that were innovated you know, uh, that they came up with. And and the concept of uh, not only the upright wing or the wood duck wing, the variant, which goes back, uh, oh, to England, uh, which was a fly. At times, they you know, people would tie variant with uh, hen hackle wings. And then a lot of times, then it, and it came to just hackle, the variant fly. So, you, you know, you have all these... Uh, uh, Conover, tremendous fly, and and the the stories. I encourage people to to get 
to buy the books on the Deddies and, and, and Harry Darby and read these books because there's just infinitely more information that goes into detail that we, we could, we need hundreds of hours to get into all these little subtleties of how these great patterns evolve, you know, uh, oh, I live in New York city, I guess you can hear that. <laughs> yeah. Someone's in trouble. Don't throw away from the Catskills. Yes. So they start to tie and Rupe Cross kind of just, you know, he had, he fell on hard times. Apparently he had, there was a fire in his house and I don't know what he moved away and whatever. So now you had this other little group of individuals, uh, away from the Catskills, but were associated with the Catskills, a Preston Jennings. I think it was a Brooklyn man originally. Right. Yeah. Brooklyn man. A Brooklyn man. And later. And a wonderful streamer so- tire. Streamer Jennings yeah. streamers were amazing. And he was associated and he became friendly. Uh, Charlie DeFeo. Right. New, new Jennings. And then Jennings would come up and then he met this young fella, uh, Art Flick. So Jennings had a whole different take on flies. Jennings, uh, a consummate salmon fly tire. Okay. Uh, and that's a whole nother discussion that we could get into about the Catskills and salmon fishing, but yes. we're, we're getting off topic. So, you know, Jennings had this thing about color, uh, which was very critical. And you have a couple, not many mayflies, uh, upright wing or wood duck wing flies that use two hackles. And the reason being is to approximate a color. All right. For example, the Cree is a kind of multicolored feathered bird. And you, you know, we would use two different hackles to uh, accommodate that. Jennings was very, very much into this prismatic effect of color. So in other words, now we start to, evolve like people look at flies and they start thinking about well color has as an effect something about the fly has to give off a color you know you you know gordon was very astute about color as well okay and you know but when you get to uh rube cross and you look at his tied flies you know it was i think the a lot of the dubbing, you don't have a lot of different colors in the dubbing. You know, you use fox fur or whatever, and that was it. You know, you didn't combine uh, fox fur with, you know, uh, although you could with seal fur was very uh, uh, used a lot to create color. But it, I think Preston Jennings had this thing about color that was very critical. And then his, he came out with a hatch chart. Okay, he was the first in his book, uh, which I have here. I have a first edition, a book of trout flies by Preston Jennings. It's a great book. Sure. I recommend. You can still iconic, get it. Iconic. It's very uh, not much money. It's still good. And then, of course, he he has this student, you know, uh, Art Flick, and it's a classic where the student exceeds the professor in my opinion, okay? Because Art, uh, although he fished other streams, and we'll get into different uh, rivers uh, at another time, uh, the hatches are pretty much the same. 
So he built upon Jennings' work, and he took two, two years, two and a half years' time off to study hatches, and he came out with the Streamside Guide, if we're still going in the right direction here. And that is essentially, right yes. the Streamside Guide essentially transformed fishing, in my opinion, into Catskills. It my was very family. accurate. It was spot on. Uh, he, he was honest in how to tie. You know, you could look at Rube Cross's books on tying and you kind of go, you know, if you've tied long enough, you go, I think he skipped something or he failed to mention something, you know, and you kinda, you know, because that was very coveted. Nobody wanted to teach anybody anything. It was all a secret, you know, even to this day, you know, uh, you know, we have a video of Mary Deddy and we go, uh, Mary, what, what, what was that? Oh, well, it was this and it was that, and, you know, whatever. Oh, well, it, oh yeah. So at Spar Varnish or something, you know, just, you know, uh, we do our own thread, which is fair. It's okay. It's not a big deal. But back then, very critical. No one wanted to share. So the fact that Art Flick came out with this book uh, really revolutionized. You could go anywhere in the Catskills, and it would, here's instructions how to tie this. Here's this how to tie. And these are the materials that you need. This is when and where you, you fish this and the actual hatches. So in England, this was old news. You know, for In England, you have Ronald's in 1842. You know, you had hatch books going way back when. You got books in England that, you know, chronicled, well, on the 2nd of May, you fish this fly in this river, you know. And in America, we really didn't have that. We, we were lacking for a lot of years. And this streamside guide really changed things around, you know. So, at that, so you know, then Preston Jennings, I guess there's a falling out in, oh, well. You know what? Uh, he kind of fades away in, in, in my uh, impression of things. But Art Flick, truly huge. And what's remarkable, even more so about Art Flick, is his conservation, his efforts in uh, in in, pub- in creating public water and Scoharry, con- right? Scoharry and, and 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 the idea of public water in general. He started this. Yeah. You know, uh, you already had stretches of water, you know, that were public. And that that was truly remarkable, too. Uh, you, you mentioned that there's still tremendous amount of public water that, that can be fished. But, you know, Art Flick in, 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 in those his conservation and in his uh, writing that Streamside guy, huge guy, huge in, in, in history. You know, you still have, you know, uh, the Daddies and Darbies went their own ways. And what's other remarkable, uh, well, you need materials. And I don't know, maybe an, another time we'll talk more about materials. But, you know, chickens are very important. But maybe we'll get, I don't know, Matt, you want, we'll go materials another time, okay? Yeah, what we're going to do, because we're already running into about two and a half hours here. Um, we're going to, the next part two is going to be the flies the hatches, the materials, the modern stuff. What I think, you know, to do, to do justice to the dead and to honor the legends and the lore, we have to talk about all these people because that's part of it. And we're trying to be so inclusive 
and transparent in this whole journey that we're trying to do with with tackling two two old white dudes trying to tackle the cat skills is pretty brutal and we, there's so much we're going to be leaving out and there's so much that we can't say and cuz it's just time we could literally probably do a 40 hour podcast on the cat well, skills there's other, you know unfortunately and one of my quests and 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 being president of the guild is trying to present to the membership you know it's just not you know not to to, to dismiss Diddy's and Darby's and Gordon, but there's there's so many other vi- individuals involved. Larry Solomon, who wrote, you know, the Caddis about Caddis, you know, way before Gary LaFontaine. You know, we're we're getting we're school. getting into the new school, so don't. But don't that's a but, but just to bring the point that we're still missing a lot of people. You know, Ray Smith. We really didn't talk about Ray Smith that much, but we will when we talk about flies and rivers and such. But you know, he's a guy in the 30s or whatever, 40s. You know, there's so many others out there that, you know, unfortunately, you know, as we as we learn more, we got to give them more respect. And and hopefully, in the words of Marriott, you know, it's unfortunate that there are many still that won't get the credit they deserve. You know, Mar- what was it? Davidson, the, the store up in, uh, you know, uh, the Bruce area, uh, the Willow he was a good fly tire, you know, uh, whatever. On and so, on. It's on, on and, and on, on, my brother. Yeah, it is. Uh, so the, I think what it brings what it brings it all back to when you look in retrospect, it's one giant church of worship. And the worship is the trout. And the worship is the water. And the worship is is the beauty of the technique. And the simplicity and beauty and complexity all interwoven into one. And that's what the Catskills has embodied more than anywhere. Where could you go? And and I always look at the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum, which is a, which is a hollowed church, and it's a Correct. church that is so. It's it's like going to the Vatican. It's like when you go there, what is there, is 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 a testimonial to thinking man's fly fisher, thinking woman's fly fisher. The the you know the amount of love and effort. When you take a human being and put them into a simple art, like putting a hook with materials on and throwing it out there to catch and drag a fish around by its head, when you put that all together, it is the most complex thing on the planet. And and how could you, when you look at how everything's been dummied down today, the, I talk about the dark ages of fly fishing, which sometimes I think we are in today because we've taken such a cerebral, spiritual sport and transformed it into uh, in essence riding a bike just get on it and ride don't worry about where you're going and a lot of times when you take something as hollowed as the catskill tradition nothing more hollowed even more complicated than the british tradition which is pretty pretty serious but if you look at the british tradition it was a tradition of an elitist private sector of people because most Brits fish for barbell and roach and, and coarse fish and pike. And, and occasionally you could get a private pond or you could get a lake or a lock in Scotland and fish for, for lock, lave, and trumpet. Overall, it's, it's still a sport of noblemen to fish the test in the river Itchen and to fish the to, to, to fish these hollowed waters. The, the Kennet, you have to belong to a club. You have to have wealthy money. It costs you a shit ton of money to fish these waters on any given day. 
So what we've transcended in the Catskills was taking that hollow tradition and that, that superior art form and taking it into a public sector where you, anyone could buy a fly rod and go to a stream and worship the trout as a religion because that's what it is. And that's where that passion comes from. That's why I don't know if we'll ever create that everywhere. If you think of the West, if you think of Montana, you think of the West, this is bold new America. This is the bold new American. We're out there in, in the roughness, in the wilderness and, and, and dealing with the, you know, the, the elements. And, but this was a church next to one of the largest metropolises on the planet where all these incredible minds came together to celebrate the hatching of a fly, a trout coming up and taking it, fooling the fish, and then celebrating community and spirit and passion with others is truly remarkable. And I think that's what the museum does. If any of the listeners have never been there, highly encourage going there um, and, and seeing what a fish, an insect, a beautiful river can do to transform a human being and take it to another level. With that note, I'm gonna, we're going to take a break. And we're going to come back and talk the modern school. And then we're going to just briefly go through a scan of the rivers because part two, we need to go into each river in detail and the hatches, the patterns and the techniques, which is going to be the meat and potatoes that people really want. But in order to understand where we're going, we needed to pave this foundation of those legends and lores. And that's where we're going at. And when that note, we will take a break and be back. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly and field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job. Of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo, um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline. Tell Marcos I said hi. And it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. I can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years, and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these apex beasts that are just amazing. 
their their new uh, nano silica um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter, and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders, um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, uh, traditional spay casting, uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional styling is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing. If you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're going to really enjoy these rods. Hello, listeners. As publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade-winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns, and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini-bible on a subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. Northern Magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. We are back, Hallowed Waters podcast with the historian and Schwebert-esque Joe Chabayos talking about the legends and lore and the foundation of the Catskill wild trout fly fishing dynasty. Right now, we're going to take a question and we're going to get more into modern times because we've been stuck into the turn of the century, 19th and 20th century. And uh, our next part two is going to get more depth into the rivers, the hatches, the flies, the patterns, the tactics, the lore, and where this whole future is going. But we're going to take a couple of questions. One question here from Derek from New Haven, Connecticut. And this is a question about the times and where we're at today. He says, I have fished the Catskills for 30 years. In those years, I've had amazing experiences, especially with the Hendrickson and Sulphur Hatch. Hit the green drakes once, really amazing. Each year, it becomes more difficult to go back because of the crowds. I have started to fish the Esopus and Farmington, even some Massachusetts streams. What do you guys think? Am I off base for thinking the streams are too crowded? Seek and ye shall find the adventure, the chase, the marginal stuff. Um what do you say about that? And in all honesty and retrospect, have we put too many people on the water? Well, uh, yes, we, we haven't put them. They've come to the water. Uh, and 
he's true. It's true. I mean, from many years ago to now, there's a lot more people fishing, without a doubt. I mean, the Henriksen hatch, I mean, that's something that I personally used to avoid. The reason being is it's the first major hatch, dry flies, you know, Hendrickson's 14s, uh, some, you know, maybe 12s. Fish are just gobbling. They come up to the surface and, I mean, you know, gobble, gobble. And now, uh, let's say on the West Branch or Main Stem, it, it'll be like uh, traffic on the I-5 highway going to, you know, out of Seattle. There'll be so many people. And if you're waiting, happen to wait, and you'll have boat after boat passing you, I totally sympathize. However, you can still find a spot. And you must understand that you no longer you're going to have uh, 200 feet or 300 feet in front and 300 feet behind. You know, uh, my perspective is, and I try to make it quite clear, I think a fly line at minimum, what's a fly line, 90 feet, 100 feet, uh, you know, up and back is, is, is okay, you know. And if people start getting too close, you know, you have two options. You respectfully say something or without getting in the confrontation, you walk away. But I feel for him. But I think what he's doing is, you know, there are so many other rivers to fish. You can go. You go Connecticut, tons of rivers to fish. Uh, Beaver Kill, you know, depending on water conditions, you can fish many spots. So I think he's. He's spot on in terms of what he's saying, but I would suggest to him, don't give up, go and still try to enjoy your favorite spots, but definitely explore new spots. And that can always be productive. Next question. Next question uh, is from Jesse from Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Why do you think the East Branch of the Delaware has some of the most selective brown trout on the planet? I love this river, but its trout could be brutal, especially in late summer. What do you guys think? Uh, I think that would get into a lot of what we're going to talk about in terms of tactics. Right. And that's going to be in the next part. But uh, overall, I just want to say yes, Jesse. I'll give her her this. Think about... uh, if you're talking about the upper East branch, what are we talking about? 40 feet wide, 50 feet wide and the structure of the river. It's more like a, uh, a chalk stream or spring Creek sort of, it's not like the beaver kill, you know, upper beaver kill or whatever, where you have all rough and tumbling pocket water. So the fish are going to be a lot more skittish. And in that time of year, they've been hammered to death. So you step in the water and you make a ripple. And what's the first thing? You know, a trout will do. Go, fear, safety. So you know, we'll get into more to answer her question uh, and and in depth too. Next question. Yeah. Uh, well, let me just add a little bit to that. Um, you know, the bottom line is uh, Jesse, the fact that what you're dealing with in the Catskill Rivers, and we're going to talk about that in our next segment, but when you're dealing with very complex waters, they're not only freestone rivers that if you take a classic freestone acidic river, you have that the elements of tailwaters have totally transformed everything. And we're going to talk about that. 
the fact that you have these giant spring creeks of extreme complexity of perfect water temperatures, which allows the trout to have the leisure, the selective leisure to go from one phase to the other, from the aggressive, active, passive, dormant, selective, reflective. It could tune into whatever personality it is feeding profile, triggering foraging profile, whatever it wants at any given point in time based on this new temperature regime. So when you look at the East Branch, it's one giant Henry's Fork, one giant Armstrong Spring Creek, one giant Latorte, one giant massive ecosystem where these trout have the ability to pick and choose whatever they want. And then you have these highly fertile waters that have all these classic catches and all these classic invertebrate and in, in macro invertebrate invertebrate forms you're dealing with and, and terrestrials. And you're throwing that into this placid still rivers, these long pools where a, a feather is like dropping a boulder in, in a pool. Um, you know, uh, it, it is a whole different fishery. We're going to talk about that. Uh, that is one big one. And uh, we're just going to address these questions because we just want to finish up with the modern school. And then I think we're going to save the rivers, the hatches, uh, and everything else because of lore and history is something we're trying to ascertain today. One more question from, from Paulos from Princeton, New Jersey. He says, I have fallen in love with the Catskills since arriving in this country from Macedonia. In the, and it's Paulus, Paulus, like in Greek. Uh, in the summer, the waters can warm up, and it is nice to see fishing not encouraged in 75-degree water, or excuse me, 70, 70 Fahrenheit water temps in a section by Horton Brook is closed. How come New York DEC does not uh, accentuate these closures more in other areas like it is by Horton Brook? Um, the West does hoot owl, et cetera. Uh, your thoughts on how we could make that better? Huh. Oh, please. Uh, you, you're opening up a, a, a can of worms and a very sore spot. Uh, you know, that's something that uh, the state fails to adequately address in terms of temperature. Uh, what, at what temperature you should stop. You know, I have my belief at 65. And, you know, uh, for example, Cook's Falls, where you have your gauge, could be reading 68. And you'll see people two miles downstream fishing. Water two miles downstream is not going to be colder. And, you know, there's individuals, you know, I would stop and say, hey, you know, the water's kind of warm. Oh, no, you can fish till 70. 70 is good. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not good. A fish, you know, no. Fish need the rest. And the state needs to be a little more proactive. Unfortunately, uh, you'll find that more on the beaver kill. And one of the reasons is stocking. The beaver kill is still heavily stocked. So when you have a put and take fishery, I don't think the emphasis is as uh, put on that you you should you know uh, restrict your fishing. You know, but um, but there are is a tremendous wild population of fish in the beaver kill as well. The lower river, you'll have rainbows, you'll have big browns, you know, uh, and, and, you know, but I totally agree. The DEC needs to be a little more proactive. And why you do have a refuge on the beaver kill. There's no doubt about it that you have uh, fishing uh, July 1st through, you know, August 31st or whatever it is. There's no fishing. So that's good. But what about the rest of the river? 
You know, right. I think the state still feels an obligation that, you know, people should fish and they leave it up to the better judgment of individuals, you know, to 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 uh, to fish. But I think more etiquette and education on the state's part would certainly uh, be helpful. You know, look at, you know, you would have the Skohari, you would have the lower Esopus, you know, the, the Willow Weemuck. There's other streams that. You know, basically, when there's no water in it, you know, people go, oh, I guess you can't go fishing now. You know, there should be a little more education in terms of water temperature. I agree. You know, hoot owls out west, they really do the job. You know, you don't fish. And that's it. If you're on the river and you're fishing, oops, uh, you're going to be in handcuffs. So, yeah. And it's uh, a lot of it is a Band-Aid, you know, if. If you catch a fish at 12 o'clock and it's not one o'clock yet or two o'clock yet, is that fish going to survive at three o'clock? So we let it go. It looks good. Let's take the picture. Let's feel good. Let's go back to the lodge. High five. Woohoo. Bingo. We're the, we're good. But you know, in essence, a lot of it's bandaid, uh, probably closing something permanently or, or temporarily, it's not permanently temporarily till conditions approve is probably the best thing. So how much good does hoot owl really do? Um, it's a Band-Aid. It's, just, it's a it's Band-Aid. Good, you know, a good Band-Aid. You look at historically, you know, the fishing season was quite short. Okay? And, you know, it used to end at the end of June. You know, and that was, you know, you know what basically there were no tailwaters. We'll get into that. But there was a reason why this, the season was very short. You know? And that, unfortunately for us, the season's getting longer and longer. And now we got no close season. Yeah. It's, and it's, what does that do to the, to the tradition of fly fishing? I think it kind of ruined it because what was something that you looked forward to every year? April, April 1st. 1st. Man, was that, you couldn't you know, sleep for weeks. You didn't sleep. And that was something to be cherished and something to be a part of. You know, when I grew, when I was growing up in the daily news, newspaper in the city of New York, April 1st, opening day, you'd always see a, p- a picture of all the guys doing the first cast. Junction pool. Junction pool on the beaver kill and everybody's talking. That's gone. It's a you disaster. That's, it's a disaster. It's a celebration of life. Life is a nothing but a celebration. A, a celebration. celebration of rituals. A cel- we celebrate birthdays. We celebrate this. We celebrate Valentine's Day. We celebrate this. By the way, listeners... Will you be my Valentine's? I'm a day late, but I hope you are. I know Joe's my Valentine. So there you go. He's, he's my he's my Polish brat Valentine. Uh, he's my Kohane. Yusef Kohane, Yusef. Um, but anyways, you're absolutely right. So these traditions, you talk, you look back, Trout Madness by John Volker. The whole book was dedicated to oh, great opening, guy. Day, opening day. You know, we're just, we, dad couldn't sleep. He drank too much bourbon last night. He was so excited, you know, getting up. I remember waking my dad up at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. Dad, we got to get up. We're going to be late. Um, oh. You know, it was to go fish the East Coy and the West Coy and all my upstate New York trout streams. And um, it was such original and, and to, to just give it all up that you could do it all the time, real time, full time. These are the rituals and closing the season back then in June, July, you know, the Pennsylvania did the same thing. They had their seasons, you know, the days of Marinero and them, you know, they wrote about trout season closed in the middle of June, July back then to preserve these fish, to give them respect. We still have a trout closure here at September 30th in Michigan. And I, 
to tell them all the time, please don't open it up. We have seven months out of the year where you can't fish for trout. You can't even walk the stream. And these are wild trout streams that, that, and we have tremendous amount of wild trout in them. And that's, we talk wild, but we don't walk on the wild side. And I just did a blog about, you know, creating wild trout utopias. It's my latest blog. And do we really mean what we say? Do we really mean what we envision? And the biggest problem is going to be, and we're going to address it into the next episode, is the future. Opening up seasons uh, to wild trout is an epic fail. It's it's a kryptonite. It's a disaster for wild trout, and we can't allow it. But anyways, we're going to finish up here, and then um, we're going to talk about the modern school very quickly. But I think, Joe, we're going to save the rivers, the hatches, the fly patterns, and the tactics for part two because we've already well, got into three hours of this one. But well, uh, let's, let's, let's do the follow. modern school. Okay, modern, modern school. school. Here we go. In my opinion, you know, that's just me, the way I look at it, is you have this culture uh, of style of tying, feathers, fur, okay? And, you know, and then Al Couchy, mid-70s, okay, comes up with this pattern called the Comparadun. Now, Comparadun, in terms of a, a pattern, or a, a style of tying, you know, we can go back to Fran Betters, uh, who came up in what, 1940s with the haystack. And then subsequently, you know, the haystack, the wing is a, a, a lot more forward. And then he comes up with the usual, which he brings the wing up a bit more. And, you know, haystack was tied with deer hair. The usual was tied with snowshoe rabbit. So what Al Couchy does is he uses deer hair, but he ties that forward wing on that fly at a right angle. Okay. And that basically is the not, no hackle fly. There's no hackle used. And I believe that is what started to change uh, fly tying in the Catskills. Because Al Couchy brilliantly took that design and now you have the compara, he came up with the Comparadun, so you call it Compara Emerger. So basically, it was a kind of like in the style of what some people might know as a last chance crippable or or like a haystack where it's a forward wing, but it was made to be an emerger, which in essence is something I think was new in terms of fly tying, this concept of emerger, tying a fly for an emerger. You know, there's a couple other guys. There's uh, Rim, the famous Korean guy who came up with the RS2. It's an emerger pattern. So we have this shift into these emergers. You have the comparison spinner. So in other words, well, years of, you know, the way where spinners were tied, you know, you use wings. Uh, you use hackle points uh, for, for spinners. Now you got this compare-done, compare-spinner, compare-merger, compare-done. Hackleless, and it started to change, and the concept of emergers started to change. Uh, you know that, in essence, you also had the. Uh, you could look at the way uh, caddis flies were dressed, and you go back to caddis and the what's his name, Larry Solomon, and this other fellow who wrote at around the same time about caddis flies and tying caddis flies in different ways. So Leonard that, Wright. Think, Leonard Wright. Well, Leonard Wright read Never Sink, but I have the book. You can still get it. 
uh, we should mention it uh, tomorrow. It's still reasonably priced. I mean, it was before Gary LaFontaine wrote anything about caddisflies. It was really, and it was, these are Catskill guys, basically. So on that aspect of, now we got caddisflies being addressed in a very specific and productive way. Okay. So then you have Al Couchy uh, coming up with all these, these, so you just changed the body of the color, you know, the, the, the dubbing here. And Al came up with this spectrumized dubbing. Okay. In other words, he had dubbing that was blended with some sort of synthetic material or sparkle. I don't know the secret, you know, it was called spectrumized dubbing, but there was a lot added into it, which was recognizing, you know, if you look at a mayfly, that the body, oh, it's got a million colors in it. Tone. You know? That was all about tone. Oh, so tone oh yeah. Is everything. Tone is everything. And it's everything. And, you know, when we go back in fly tying, you know, how many people started to address that? I mean, you got guys uh, doomed way back when sunshine in the dry fly. You got, oh, I got it right over here. Let me see. Sunshine in the dry fly. What year? You know, and then we kind of lose that aspect uh, of it. Nineteen. Uh, 1924, but this is in England, not yes. in America. You know, again, the English, you know. So Al ha- has this spectrumized dubbing, which starts to, uh, you know, there's a little synthetic material in it, and then this simplified uh, way of tying, and then the concept of emergers. Yeah. And that changes everything. You know, ha- well, we have to go back. We have to go back to one massive book, Selective Trout, Swisher and Richards. Oh, I'm not the even iconic, not, yeah. iconic start yeah. of everything. Well, yeah, Vince Marinaro. Uh, yeah, another one. You know, his uh, thorax tie uh, and their concepts of uh, of light and material. All, oh, oh, but you know. But sticking with on the Delaware and with Couchy, I mean, you know, Marinaro fish, uh, what, in Pennsylvania? Right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, as a Catskill guy, whoa, whoa, Pennsylvania. You know, but you're right. That's the modern school. Pennsylvania is right across the border from Hancock. So Pennsylvania. The The ring and the rise. Whoa. Serious. But really, in all aspects, uh, if you look at, the contribution to this fly tying genre that we're talking about this selective trout was that first book that came along and talked about mergers. And we never, you never, when you were growing up, you saw Adams, you saw a bread crust nymph, you saw this, that you never seen a merger. Mergers were something very modern today and, and selective trout. And my, uh, one of my mentors, uh, Carl Richards, who I fish with the caddis hatches here on my Muskegon river. He was that man, along with with Swisher, another brilliant tactician that started that whole Couchy-Nastasi school that we're talking about. Yeah, you, you know, you look at their book. I'm looking at it right now. Hatches and tying. Uh, the amount, what, 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 what Al contributed is, is, is truly amazing. And it was work in entomology. With Nastasi, you know, hatches. One, this was done, geez, how many years ago? This book. Oh, I got too many books over here. Let's look <laughs> at this. 
Hatches. You got hatches one, hatches. Don't get two. don't get too much into hatches because we got we're gonna talk about that once we get into the contemporary flight patterns. That's 75, the next part too. But it goes back, I think what it what it what it'll it'll bolster is the fact of this new way of tying and new way of looking at mayflies and then and you know the seventies is this new school, this new approach to fly tying and the way flies are tied. So that that's the new school. The new school. And then let's talk about other members of that. You know, Joan Wolf and Lee Wolf. You know, Joan was such a is, is such an amazing woman that has done so much in her casting and her proficiency and her uh the new the new legends that that have well, taken yeah, the Lee wolf, Wolf's the Royal Wolf, you know, the flies that Lee Wolf designed. You know, so much so much is there. You had, you know, you have Ed Van Putt, you have Art Lee, who's one of my favorites. I loved Art uh, to death. He was such a wonderful guy. Um, I knew Art very was, well. You know, you know, when the tailwaters were really turning into incredible fisheries, Art was a brilliant writer, brilliant writer on Atlantic salmon. Uh, Art taught me a tremendous amount. Um, his writings today are still some of the best uh, since I'm an Atlantic salmon fanatic. Um, so, yeah, the, this was all part of there. So, you know, everybody eventually... You know, once you fish for brown trout, you become addicted to Atlantic salmon. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote Atlantic salmon brown trout nexus, because the Salmo is is such a powerful fish and takes you into those areas and those connections. And that's what happened in the Catskills is everybody just looked for started with poor man's Atlantic salmon, which were brown trout, and then eventually went to Atlantic salmon and how Hewitt wanted to have Atlantic salmon. There's still Atlantic salmon that never sink reservoir they're still stocked there and if you go there they're they're still around so um the bottom line is that new school is now so vibrant and then spurred so many great writers and and uh you know fred arbona and and um the the mayfly oh, the tremendous trout, book. you know this the one i just recommended to you and you know so so much going on that's the modern school and what the modern school is today people like us talking about this passion guides um there's the, the books by Austin Francis, Land of Little Rivers, Catskill Rivers, um, anything that comes out with a passion for these wonderful places. Back to the shrine, which is the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum. Um, I encourage all to go there, uh, become a member, and then, you know, be let get into books, get into the knowledge. There's so much there. And and today we've we've bastardized books and we've bastardized that knowledge, but it's time to reconnect to that. Um, and that's very said, you know, Matt, you're, you're right on that. When we had a little side discussion, you know, I hope that, you know, by us mentioning these individuals and their contributions and the actual books, that it would encourage people to go out and read these books, you yes. know, that that are just so wonderful, you know, to, to understand the history and the mindset of how these of, of these individuals and their contribution. And somewhat to think, you know, about your own self and where you are and what you're doing. And maybe you'll get a different perspective and, an, and, and, and hopefully an approach to improve your experience. I'm not, not necessarily fishing, fishing. It's an experience, you know. Amen. Amen. It's, Amen. It's, you know, you have that wonderful breakfast in the morning, you know, and then you have the expectation and you step on the water and you have, if you don't enjoy all of that, and then the cast, if you don't enjoy to make a cast, uh, bye. Yeah.
you know, and then if you catch a fish, oh, now, now, you know, that's a, we always would say that's a bonus. So yeah, it's such a, it's such a complexity of enjoyment that you just peel the layers and every layers, every, every spoon in your mouth gets tastier. Every, every time you sip and every time you bite that, that satiation for that comes when you combine the lore, the legends, the history, the art, the beauty, the, the science, the, you know, and, and the complexity of the patterns and the things and you put it all together comes from the books, comes from the knowledge, comes from being on the water, comes from bowling out there. Don't go out and say, well, you know, go out with the, with the potential that you have the ability to enjoy these rivers and these streams. They're still there today. They still fished incredibly well. You still have incredible fishing there. Yes, they're crowded. We're going to get into all those details, what the future holds, what the present holds. But at that point, we're going to have to conclude this first part, but I think we got through a lot of the heaviness of this whole thing, and and it almost comes down to the legends and the lore, but uh, we're going to get into part two about the rivers, about the hatches, about the fly patterns, about the tactics that is going to take you to that level of appreciation, and once you go there, it's like attaining nirvana. It's like the ohm. I've finally made it to this level and you feel so complete in your journey and and your mind is at rest and everything is nothing but a garden of utopia no matter what your day is whether you catch fish or you don't catch fish it was the experience and it was being alive and being available to do this in a new world that we live in on that note we are going to conclude part one we're not going to do any zip clips today we're going to do them at the end of part two but we hope and our goal was for our listeners to understand the beauty of these waters and how they mean so much and look at them as a respect and beauty of the fish, the waters, and the lore and the legends that were before you. That's all I got. Joseph, any parting words for us? Dovizenia. Dovizenia. Bracek. Juzek. Chebaios. On that note, Hallowed Waters listeners, we bid you adieu. Goodbye. Dovizenia, auf Wiedersehen, au revoir, adios, ciao bambini, bambino, bye bye.